Well, good morning. It's good to be here in the metropolis of Mifflinburg. Open your Bibles up if you'd be willing to the book of Ephesians. And uh, I feel right at home. I, I live currently in uh, Watertown, Tennessee. And uh, it's probably, honestly, as unremarkable as it sounds, but we love it. You know, there's 2,000 people in town. You know, I got to know them all first couple years. And so it's uh, we live just outside of Nashville. So anything we need, we can go there. And then we just come back to just us and cows. It's awesome. So it's kind of a small town feel, similar to, to y'all's place. You, you say y'all up here? Probably not. You guys... You guys, know what it is? Well, hey, it's uh, good to be with you. I got to spend some time with your teens last night who bullied me a little bit, but that's okay. So we got to spend time together and got to the motel and got here this morning and really excited about sharing with you uh, some, some material that might challenge you a little bit. If you want to look with me specifically at Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to begin and I'm going to be... Um, I'm going to be bouncing around quite a bit, <clears throat> and uh, we're going to be kind of laying the groundwork of what we want to we want to look at this week, um, which is uh, the culture of the church in Ephesus, um, and really got to study uh, the this letter that Paul writes to this church in Ephesus uh, during you know uh, spring of 2020. Found myself for the first time, and you know. We've been on this, this year, been on the road for 27 years, which is pretty, been awesome, you know, and extraordinary, especially since I'm only 38. So uh, it's, it's been uh, most of our life on the road. And so that, that period of time, it was a short time for us, only about three months where I was off the road um, and just really dove into this, this, um, this letter. I felt like the Lord led me here for such a time as this. So I want to share with you kind of a background on it. We know more about the church in Ephesus <clears throat> than we do really any other church in our New Testament. Um, we know about how it was birthed in uh, Acts chapter 19. Paul, uh, actually, and you don't have to turn there, just give you a quick, uh, quick kind of overview. But uh, Paul and uh, Apollos kind of um, are, are dividing uh, forces. And Apollos goes to Corinth and Paul goes through the interior and ends up in the port city of Ephesus. And comes in and there's just this tremendous move of God that takes place. And out of that move of God is uh, produced a church. And probably the theme of, obviously not just the early church, but of Ephesus is encounter. I've uh, been doing youth ministry for a, a long time, for a long time. And one of the consistent things that I find is, is parents who come to me who talked to me about the teenager that I probably remember most of the time, um, and they asked for prayer. They're now in their 20s, and they're not going to church. They're not walking with the Lord, and they're just bewildered. You know, they don't understand. And I can understand that to a degree, you know, because they say stuff like, I don't understand. They were in church. It's a good, healthy family. Um, you know, they were in the teen group. They weren't serial killers. <laughs> you know, they were just, you know... They were, they were in the quiz team, whatever. Um, and they just don't understand what happened. And my, my, my response is always, always, did they have an encounter with the person of Jesus? Did they have an encounter with the person of Jesus? Did they have a, a, a relationship with him that developed out of meeting him? Because there's no amount of Bible study, there's no amount of church attendance that can replace that. They have to have an encounter with God. Period. Because there's just, sooner or later, if it, if it dwindles down to a religious system or beliefs or something along those lines, um, kind of a way to get to heaven, there's other opportunities out there. But if you have an encounter with him. Uh, in 1995, I didn't come from a Christian family. Um, and so, probably find, find that out on the internet. But I didn't, you know, live a, a very uh, prosperous life. <clears throat> but in 1995, after getting out of the military, living in California, I had a friend of mine invited me to a, to a Billy Graham crusade, kind of under the cover. Didn't tell me, or I wouldn't have went. 
and um, I went and just had an encounter with the Lord. I mean, I, I had an encounter with someone that was bigger than me, and uh, I, never, I never got over it. That's what's going on in the church at Ephesus that, that, that developed. There were things that took place there that were not natural. They were supernatural. There were people that were healed. There were, I mean, it was just it's extraordinary. I mean, we, there are a few places in the New Testament where scholars comment that it's similar to what happened at Pentecost. I mean, at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, there were things happened that just were eye-opening, that were eye-opening for everybody. Thousands of people came to the Lord. That happened in uh, Acts chapter 19 with the church of Ephesus. So that's how the church started. And then, of course, a little while later when Timothy is there and he's pastoring and Paul's in prison in Rome facing death, he writes this letter, which we're going to go through this week. Uh, and then we find out in Revelation chapter 2, some of, you know, comments of Jesus who is speaking about to the church at Ephesus about those who started the church, probably like great-grandparents or maybe great-great-grandparents, honestly, probably a period of about 40 years. Um, Jesus looks at that church and says, I wish you were like your grandma and grandpa. I wish you had what they had. Because although the church at Ephesus, by the time you get to Revelation, they were a powerful church, phenomenal church, produced all the other churches in the province of Asia. They just had developed into an institution of programs and routine, which wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. But they lost that intimate connection, that daily walking with the person, which is who they were. One of my favorite things about the church at Ephesus in Acts 19 is when you go down, you have this guy Demetrius who shows up. I think he's Russian. And um, he's complaining. He's not Russian. So he's complaining, and he's actually brought formal charges against the church, and specifically Paul. And he stands up, and he makes this claim against Paul. And he says, this fellow has not only, not only tore up our city, but he's polluted the entire province of Asia. And I, I know, I bet there was just roaring, just celebration. Like the movement of God that had spread throughout that entire, not just the town of Mifflinburg, but the entire province of Asia. And of course you had scholars tell us about 9 to 11 other churches that had exploded and it all been a result from what God did here. And so that's just really, I find that incredibly intriguing. And I want to walk with you through some of, of this letter. It's just, it is really uncomfortable and awkward and I'd like to have you share that with me because they use a lot of language that we do not use in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 and we're going to go back eventually so there's going to be kind of a long introduction and I want you to see this for yourself so if you have those uh, you know I've got digital so I can I can get there quickly but if you got those ancient paper documents praise the Lord you can use those but you can kind of flip back and forth. But I want you to look at what we're going to look at uh, just with your own eyes. You can see we're not making anything up or stretching the truth. But there's an interesting emphasis that Paul stresses five times in this letter. We're going to look at all five of these verses. So we're going to look at the last one first because it's kind of the sum up. Five times in this letter, Paul mentions this place called the heavenly realms. And specifically the spiritual beings that are there in which oppose us. It's where, our, it's where those terms like adversary, hear me please, it's where those terms, those terms adversary is used. And verse 12, listen to this language. It's really, there's no wiggle room. I love wiggle room. <laughs> I think we all love wiggle room. You know, when you're kind of pinned down on something and like this is exactly what it says. It can, be, it, can be, uh, it can be uncomfortable. Listen to how Paul writes. He comes down into verse 12. And by the way, verses 10 down through verse 20, we're currently studying this. In fact, let me tell you this. Um, if you have your uh, phones, you might be able to do it now as long as they're on silent. But if you go to jeremiahbullock.com, there's a thing up in the right-hand corner, like these three little lines. It's menu. And uh, we've got a resources page with our sermon notes. And so I've got all of the notes there that you would not stay awake to listen to if I were to say them out loud. All the fun grammar stuff. Praise the Lord for grammar. And Greek, yes, I hear that voice. Praise the Lord. And so that's there. You can go back and read through that. And if you have any questions, because people's like, wow, really? You know, is that? You can go back and study it for yourself. And I've got all that there. And, and then you can comment and all that. So that's at my website. If you've got my names probably printed somewhere, you can find it. JeremiahBullock.com. 
upper right-hand corner, resources, sermon notes. Let's, let's read this verse. Verse 12, Paul says, this is one of the key staple verses of the letter. For our struggle, that word for struggle is um, literally translated fight. If you, if you take that term and you kind of search it out in the first century, um, a lot of our combat sports that we would call sports originate out of that uh, Roman um, empire and that Roman way of life and Roman way of thinking. And in the arena, they had, of course, we're f- probably familiar with just because of Hollywood and movies and research and history. There's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, uh, information we know about gladiatorial games and such. But it was, it was, there was a variety of what they called entertainments. And one of the entertainment was a specific kind of fighting, which was this word here, which was hand-to-hand combat. No weapons, just two individuals, no clothing, just fists, and they went after it, and it was just go until there's one that's no longer going. That's that terminology. So it was a style of fighting. So it's literally a fighting to the death. Okay? And, and again, this is the kind of language. Paul uses all kinds of Roman imagery. All the way through this section, he's using the armor of God, right? So he's using a lot of Roman imagery to speak to the, to the people that live in the Roman Empire. It was just common for their day. So he's using the kind of, when he says our struggle, he's literally painting a picture that And this applies to us, obviously, that you are in a fight for your life, whether you realize it or not. You are in a fight to the death, period. You and I are. And he says, our fight, strangely enough, is not against flesh and blood. And if you get in the the original language, the phrase flesh and blood means flesh and blood. So we are in a fight to the death. And it is not against physical stuff. So the problem, just as illustrative, the problem in our country is not physical. It's spiritual. And by replacing physical things or physical people, which I've got no problem with most of that, but the ultimate problem in our country, in our city, in our family, in our neighborhood, in our schools is spiritual, not physical. That we need a movement of God in our nation and our families. Again, it's not just information, organization. One of the things that, that I hear consistently, or to be honest, annoys me. So hopefully you won't do it. But they walk out of the service from time to time. And most of the time it's the, you know, the older generation. Okay? Not, not young like me, but the older generation. My age and up. They say stuff like, well, that's really interesting. And it seems like it somehow gets caught here. So Christianity doesn't exist here. It does. It, Christianity and, and God influences how you think, but Christianity, God himself influences here. You have heart change, and out of heart change, it changes the way you think. It's not reverse. It's not reverse. And sometimes we get caught up into the thinking. We could just change physical things, people, institutions, programs, which is, that, none of that's bad, but from, a, from the lens of the early church, and specifically Paul to this church, everything starts here. Everything starts here. It's, 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 spiritual, it's a spiritual struggle. It's a spiritual deal. So he says, we do not struggle against flesh and blood. So you'd say, who do we struggle against? We struggle against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces. So that's four things, okay? And all of those are in the heavenly realms, all of these. So our, our issue, our problem, our fight is not with physical stuff. It's not my neighbor. It's not, it's not something I could see with my hands. If there's a spiritual, and it's interesting for me because my whole life, just speaking with me, my whole life I've seemed to default to the physical. I seem, I seem to default to, to physical answers. I default to, well, it's, it's a physical problem. That's just not the way that's just not the way they talked. It's not their lens by which they've seen their world. In fact, people like me, typically, very, very, you know, hands-on what I can see and touch and feel, I've often, you know, made expressions like, well, you know, people who talk spiritual, which we all agree, there's demons and angels and all that. You know, you can get caught up in that and look for a demon under every rock. Well, that's how they, they lived. In fact, Paul said, listen, Take every thought you have captive. Not every other thought, not every third thought, not a few times a day. 
Take every single thought you have captive and submit it to the obedience of Christ. Why? Because you don't know what you're hearing. That you and I were created to not only live and not only be influenced by, but to influence that, that, that realm. In fact, the major weight that we have in how we change our world is not physically, it's spiritually. I live in Tennessee, and everything is so physical there. They can solve the guns with their, or solve the problems with their guns kind of thing, you know, with the physical. And I'm all about guns. Praise the Lord. Everybody should be packing. But, I mean, that's so true in Tennessee. I mean, seriously. Something happens on Sunday, I'm going to be killed in the crossfire. But, you know, all those boneheads who chased, went to the, they all come from Tennessee, or at least most of them did. And that aside, you know, that's just not how we're going to change our world. That's just not how we're going to change our world. That there has to be a divine movement of God that changes the hearts of people. Christianity is not just about doing something different. It's about feeling different. It's about being different. It's about being a new creation. And I know how many of you have Nazarene roots, and of course there's other denominations and all that, but one of the things that make us unique and that, that I just really believe in the midst of all the wavering we have in denominations today with, with, with our, our message, our group, is that you can be a different person. But you can literally be different. Not just do different things and kind of grind it out and wait, can't wait to get to heaven and I'll just resist. That's never what Jesus... Jesus talked about being a new creation. About being brand new. That is a, that is a transformation that only God can bring. So we're not talking about physical adjustments. They're not just, see, when you come and look at what happened in Ephesus, it wasn't just like, well, you know, hey, he had great sermon illustrations. That's what it was. You know, it's not that kind of a thing. It wasn't like they used praise versus, you know, or this kind of worship versus that kind of worship. It wasn't that kind of a deal. There was a movement of God that took place. And the movement of God that was happening was influencing in the spiritual realm where they were involved. So I want to talk to you a little bit about that this morning. And I want to begin by just really focusing on these five statements. And literally, the, the whole book of Ephesians, this whole letter revolves around five statements about who you are and how you are influenced and how you influence the heavenly realms. The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. Like we, that, that's where we war. That's where we influence. You just can't beat them. We've tried. It has to be spiritual. We have to influence. So I'm going to look at these five statements. And, and when I first read them, just going through the whole study myself and really kind of processing what he was talking about, the first thing that I realized is that every time that Paul mentions heavenly realms, that's in the plural. It's just plural. It means that there's more than one heavens. And the heavenly realms is actually a compound Greek word of heavenly places. So there's more than one heavens. And I was like, that doesn't sound correct. So I went back, and you can look at this with me. We're only going to be here for a, a moment. But Genesis chapter 1, first book in our Bible, it says there in verse 1, in the beginning, God created the... That's plural. I was like, man, I should have picked that up in college. There's more than one heavens. Like, I did not know that. How could I not know that? Yeah, there's more than one heavens. In fact, when you, when you study, and, and you got to be careful because there's all kinds of people out there who just say things. I like to, I like to really tack it down to the scriptures. Uh, some people say there's seven heavens. Some people that say there's a hundred. There's all these kinds of wild, you know, uh, observations. But when you actually go throughout the scriptures themselves, you're going to find that the scripture highlights three levels of heaven or three different types of heaven or three places in the heavenly realms. The first place is what we call the highest heaven. Paul talks about it to the church in Corinth, how he goes up. He knew a man, referring to himself, who goes into the highest or the third heavens. And he sees things that he can't utter. Okay, we know that uh, John, in Revelation chapters 4 and 5, he goes into the highest heaven. That's, that's described as this place where you have the absolute rule and reign of God. And there's no opposition that goes on there. It's, it's just, it's a holy environment. The whole place takes on the very nature of God himself. It's where he dwells. That's the highest heaven. And that's where we talk about people going to heaven, which needs to be explained. But that's what they're talking about. That's the place where God resides. It's called the third heaven. The first heaven is the place that's actually 
It's weird to describe, but it's, it's, it's right off the face of the earth. Um, most of the time, it's not even translated heaven. It, it's the word heaven, but most of the time, it's translated sky throughout the New Testament, specifically when Jesus is teaching and he talks about the birds of the sky. That word sky is heaven. You're like, they should just translate it heaven. But that, that's the word heaven. So it's the birds in the heaven. It's the clouds in the heaven. It's the stars in the heaven. It's, it's the place where you can see what's there. You can't necessarily see the heavens because it's a spiritual place. But it's the place that's like right off the face of the earth. Mankind has been ordained for the earth. Yeah, I've been, I've been, uh, been trying to leave on social media messages to Elon Musk. He's not responding. I just don't think we're going to make it to Mars. Why? Because Jesus is coming back to earth. Just think on it. But it's, it's the idea that man was created here. I don't want to go there. Jesus, come back here. I won't be. Just think on it. But so man has been ordained to be on earth and God is in heaven. And then Paul refers, and others as well, throughout the New Testament, even Old Testament, there's this middle place. And we call it the second heavens just out of default. I mean, Paul specifically mentions the third heaven, so there has to be two more. The first heaven is the place that we can see. It seems like the closest to the earth. The heavenly realms, the second area, is the place where you have all of these, these spiritual beings. We see this right out of the gate in Genesis. I, it was interesting to me. I went back to the very beginning. My thought was, okay, let's just go back to where it all started. But the problem is, is when you go back to in the beginning, you begin to find out that it's not the beginning. I mean, it is the beginning because it's in the beginning, but there's all kinds of things that are in the beginning that were around before in the beginning, which was weird. And scholars will tell you that in the, in the beginning of Genesis is actually the beginning of us. All things regarding physical, we're going to go into detail about this tonight. All things regarding the physical, mankind, and the earth that God created, that's the beginning of those things. But there were things that were around before the beginning. For instance, I mean, you find God. God's around before the, in the beginning. Uh, we have cherub that's mentioned in chapter 3, who's, who's put there at the, uh, at, the garden of, at the east side of the garden to guard the path to the tree of life. And there's no record of cherubs. Uh, you have Lucifer, get this, you not only have Lucifer who, who comes and tempts Eve, but you have a fallen Lucifer. He's not good guy, he's bad guy. And as you begin to trace that line, and it'll lead you all the way to Revelation, you find out that there was a whole entire war that happened before we ever came along. Satan was already fallen. Satan was already, rebellion had already taken place before Adam and Eve ever came on the scene. And that's all the picture that we get here in Genesis. You say, hold on, so, so, so Lucifer, fallen angel, lives in the heavenly realms. He is our adversary. Is there any place in the scriptures where that's talked about? Well, there's two places where it's talked about specifically. I want to spend a little bit of time here. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 28. And I apologize for giving you guys all this, you know, but pastor told me normally you just sit there. So I wanted, I wanted to get you involved this morning because there, there's a backstory. Listen, mankind was not created in a vacuum. It wasn't like God was just bored one day and was like, I don't know. And then just started creating. There was a, there's a whole eternal saga that took place. Jesus talks past tense. As a man, I saw, I saw Satan fall as lightning. I saw him fall. There's, there's that whole deal that took place. Here's the lens that they had, not just, hear this please. Here's the lens that they not only had in the early church, we see it really plain in Paul's language to the church in Ephesus. There's a lens by which they, they live by this, this viewpoint of physical and spiritual. That the way that their world was transformed was spiritual, not physical. It's why they didn't go attack Rome. I, I found that so bizarre. Honestly, just as honest as I can be with you, as a, as a young Christian, I go to the, this is 1995, I go to the Christian bookstore and I see all these Christians that are lining up to go into the arena. And I'd be like, I'd be taking out some of them guys with me. 
I'm from Indiana. But the point is, I, I just want, I'm just going to walk in there. They just, they didn't have any kind of physical resistance. And you would think over the period of like 70 years, all the writings that we have over the first 200 years of the early church, they didn't put any weight in the kinds of things that you and I put weight in. This is how we talk. We're so physical. We, we, when we look at spiritual things, and I'll talk to you this week, my life started to change over two years ago. We begin, I've been traveling for 27 years, and there's things that's been happening since 2020 in our ministry that has never happened, ever. And I'm a normal guy. Seriously, I'm as normal as they come. I'm like run-of-the-mill normal. Preacher, know the word, been preaching for a long time, and we begin to see supernatural things happen. People healed. And people would ever come to me and say, do you believe in people getting healed? Absolutely. You ever seen it? Well, on TV, you know, I mean, and I did, I believed it. But we begin to see it in our services that were the direct result of not a person, but God moving. It's incredible. There's all, all this, all this has been happening. And when you go back, that was normal. That was normal in this day and age. They believed the way that their world was transformed was this way, not this way. Now, we obviously have physical things we do, and, and we make assumptions, and, we, we, and we, we go out and labor physically, but the way that our world is transformed is through the spiritual. If you don't have this, this doesn't matter. You can bring, I've seen it for years, you can make your kids go to church, but unless they have an encounter with him, I'm telling you, they're going to end up as little Pharisees at best. Amen? I'm telling you. So there's this and this, the spiritual realm and the physical realm. This was understood not only in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament. So Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 28, you see this parallel, and you'll see this yourself. God comes to Ezekiel and says, all right, Ezekiel, you've got this king of Tyre. If you study this guy, he was a really bad guy. They had some really bad guys. We've had a couple. We've had Hitler. We've had a few, right? But like throughout the Old Testament, there was like tons of like really bad guys. And this king of Tyre was a really bad guy. And so God comes to him, comes to uh, Ezekiel and says, I want you to give a prophecy about this guy. Because this guy thinks he's a god. Look in verse 2. He says, say to the ruler of Tyre. That's another way that's like an emperor kind of an idea. This is what the sovereign Lord says. In the pride of your heart, you say, I am a god. God's like, guess what? You're not. And I'm going to show you you're not a god because you're going to die. And so it's this, this proclamation, now watch this, it's this proclamation against this physical king that's wreaking havoc in their world, okay, physical king. So you go down all the way through this section, and you come down to the end of verse 10, where God spokes, you, speaks, spokes is how we say it in Tennessee. In verse 11, the, Lord, the, the word of the Lord comes again to Ezekiel, and he says in verse 12, son of man, take up a lament for the king of Tyre. And, and Ezekiel's like, dude, didn't we just do this? Yeah, I just wrote all this down. And this time, hear this, God makes a proclamation about the spiritual ruler of Tyre, which is called a principality. So you have physical people and spiritual people. You have physical rulers and spiritual rulers. And listen, and scholars, um, collectively uh, identify, and I, I do, I believe they're correct, that this is, this is Satan, okay? He's talked about at the end of verse 12, and listen to how he's described. This is eye-opening. He says, you were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Now, pause there. One of my questions has always been, how did he end up in the garden? I mean, the whole snake thing, that wasn't obvious. Hello. How did he end up there? How was that all possible? How did that play out? How, how, was he, how did he end up? Why was he cast from heaven to earth? Why was he like cast from heaven to like Mars? You know, what, what's, how did we inherit this whole thing? You know, what, what took place? And by the way, Eden in this passage, there's no other place like spiritual Eden. So you have, this is earth stuff. This isn't like, well, oh, no, no, no. This is the Eden over here. There's only one Eden. And it says Satan was there. But listen, it not just says Satan was there. 
there's a connection. Listen to this. There's a connection between Lucifer, pre-fallen, created by God, perfect model of perfection, Lucifer, and the earth. Like there's a connection, an ordination that takes place. Look at this. He says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you. These are all earth stones. Ruby, topaz, emerald, chrysolite, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and pearl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared for you. So literally, there's this connection between earth and Lucifer. Like they were prepared. In fact, he goes on in verse 14 and says, You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. In other words, and a guardian cherub, guard means what you think it means. It's like a guard. It's like a guard. Like, you know those guys with the hats that you come up and you try to, you ever watch the YouTube videos on that? They're hysterical. But the, the guards, okay, that's what Satan was. He's a guardian cherub and he was created and there were elements of earth and there were elements of him. They were like, he was posted here. He was posted in the Garden of Eden. He was ordained. I don't know if pastors ever talked to you about ordination, but... It's a big deal. I was pastoring in Tennessee. Uh, I pastored there for two years, and then they fired me. But uh, for, for the two years that I was there, no, I was actually there for about seven years, and I transitioned in and transitioned out. But when I was there one Sunday, I'm locking, unlocking the building, and we had uh, this car in the front uh, section of our building, and it's loaded with all this stuff, and it was broken down kind of thing, and, and it was just all these clothes. And this guy with this other girl, he gets out, he's smoking a cigarette, he comes up to me, he's like, hey man. And I was like, hey, yeah, we're going to be feeding after church, we had a homeless ministry thing. He's like, no, 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 I want to preach. I was like, I'm not sure that's going to happen. Okay, first off, I've never seen you before. And he's like, I'm called of God. And I was like, I was like, where were you ordained? Because a call of God always has an ordination. Biblically. Always. Like a over-the-body equipper calling that we would call a pastor, you're ordained. And he was like, oh, you know, God ordained me himself. I'm like, see ya. You might want to try the other church down the road. They might be able to have you. Because ordination is a big deal. Ordination is vocal. You can have a call of God on your life, but it's always recognized by the body. In fact, when someone has a call of God, and you've probably had people with local license here, you, you know, they get a call, they stand up, I have a call to preach. The church brings them in, and in our denomination, for two to four years, they operate with what we call a local license. Yeah, we keep an eye on them. You know, we, we, we walk with them. They begin their educational requirements, and they're in relationship. And then if they don't kill anybody, we send them on the district. And then the district watches them for like six years on this whole you know, it's a larger circuit of churches, a whole nother level of accountability. And then they get all their educational requirements. And then they become ordained by a global body of believers that say, we stand behind this guy. That's a big deal. So what I'm telling you is Satan being ordained here. This is huge language. Satan just didn't come here and just be like, well, I'm going to cause trouble. S Lucifer was ordained specifically to serve on earth. We know that Hebrews tells us, this is a lot of information, I apologize, but you can go to the website, you can read all my notes. I will say this, ministering spirits, the angelic are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. They don't serve us, but they serve God on our behalf. And they operate. And Lucifer had an ordained position call of God, leadership position here on earth. Ezekiel chapter 28. Let me give you one more really quickly. Go to Isaiah chapter 14, and there's a little bit more information because, and by the way, Ezekiel and, and, and Isaiah were ministering about the same time, Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah and all those boys. And Isaiah also gives a proclamation because, because at this point, Satan has massive Hear this. Satan has massive influence over the earth. And we'll get to that in just two seconds. But he's, he's got all kinds of influence. And he's playing, the spiritual realm is playing like a puppeteer all these ungodly kingdoms. He says in verse 12, speaking a proclamation against Lucifer of chapter 14, verse 12, how you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, listen to this, I will, he said in his heart, 
I will ascend to heaven. Why would he have to ascend to heaven? Because he was ordained here. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit in throne on the Mount of Assembly. On the uttermost heights of the sacred mountain, I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. This is the most important aspect that we'll cover all morning, and then we're going to build from it. So hear this. The fall of the enemy is he wanted to be like the Most High. In the midst of all this study, I was probably having a bad day. I think it's when the mower broke. And I'm venting. And I'm like, Lord, I'm yours. I love you. I'm just trying to understand. Why did you involve us in this? I mean, just honest. I mean, I've got drama enough. I don't need heavenly spirit drama. I mean, just couldn't you just take everything, all the angels and demons, and just go to another galaxy, have it out, come back when it's done, you know? And it was very clear. The Lord was like, I didn't pull Lucifer into this. You did. I was like, okay, touche. Adam is the one that pulled the enemy into all of this. Adam was the one who sinned. It's interesting, you'd say, and, and what, what I puzzled with is, why would the enemy come against Adam and Eve when he wanted to be like the Most High? In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says, God makes man in his own image and likeness. You've read that verse? We are the only ones in all of creation, like anywhere, in heaven, on earth, above the earth, under the earth, anywhere. You can read that in Revelation chapter 5. We are unique. We're the only, angels aren't created in the image of God. We are. We're the only ones. Ain't, you know, animals were not created in the image of God. A few years ago, I was at college and we had a professor at one of our Nazarene universities who had found that genetically, there was this strand of apes was closer to our DNA than to any of its other ape relatives. Making the whole jump to you know, evolution doesn't seem that... Not. So people were coming to me and asking with me, and I didn't, I didn't have any problem with it at all. I mean, apes weren't created in the image of God. We were. No matter what the physical. I mean, we've all looked at people and thought, but biblically, biblically, apes are not created in the image of God. You and I were. We're the only ones created in his image and likeness. And Satan was jealous of what you carry. Satan is jealous of who you are in Christ. He was jealous of Adam and Eve. In fact, if you go all the, way, all the way throughout the Old Testament, Lucifer was created as a guard dog. He was, he was a guardian cherub. He was a guardian in the garden. He's like Mr. Belvedere. You may not know who that is. He was, he was seriously, he was a guardian. In fact, you look throughout the Old Testament, he's everywhere. I mean, he's walking into the throne room in that whole Job deal. And God's like, where, where did you come from? He's like, checking out my turf. God's like, well, did you go by Job's house? He's mine. And then you get into that. But how did he? He was not created with that kind of authority. He's all over the place. In Zechariah, the book of Zechariah, he's coming up accusing Joshua, the high priest. In Luke chapter 4, really quickly. In Luke chapter 4, I want to give this to you. Jesus, this is in, there's a couple different um, temptation accounts. But in Luke chapter 4, verse 5. Satan leads Jesus up to a high place and shows him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. I'm going to read this to you. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to Jesus, I will give you all of their authority and splendor for it has been given to me and I can give it to whoever I want to. And you're like, what bonehead gave him that authority? We did. Adam did. Satan was not created with that. Who was created with that? I saw this going differently. I saw you cheering. I saw you jumping up and down, being excited. This, this is like, this is huge. We were created royalty. We're sons and daughters of the Most High God. Created in His image and likeness. Paul says stuff like, in Christ, we can walk boldly into the throne room. That's who we are. 
And Satan causing Adam to sin, there was an agenda behind that. To put mankind in slavery and to usurp that position of which Jesus came and got it back. All the way throughout an Old Testament period, that's the war. It was a spiritual war. And, and, and after Adam's sin, all the way until Jesus came, mankind was in a position of slavery. Seriously. A spiritual slavery. What's going on in our world is not with people. You have some of the things we're seeing that people are considered, considering normal. And you literally go, how can they, how can you think that? You're smarter than that. It's not about this. It's about this. There's spiritually, you should see, you're, you're just like, there's spiritual deception. So all the way throughout that old covenant, let me give you two more quick examples. You don't have to turn here unless you're really excited. But I, just in, in Joshua chapter 5, verse 13, one of my favorites. So the fall of Adam has come. Let me recap because it's a lot we've talked about. With the fall of Adam, it was more than just he was taken captive spiritually. Literally, he lost who he was, his identity. He surrendered. That's why Jesus... See, there's this idea that God's going to come back and save us and take us away. Dude, we're not going anywhere. We inherit the earth. Jesus comes back and reigns. It's not just like Jesus is going to come and save us and, you know, and, and he's going to... Uh, no. Jesus is going to come back and rule. Just think about it. But all the way throughout an old covenant time period, mankind is living crippled spiritually. Which is why God consistently says, I am the one who gives you the battle. Not physically. He comes to Gideon and he's like, listen, Gideon, we're going to go against this group over here. Gideon's like, dude, we're going to be killed. God's like, yeah, I know, we've got to fix this. You've got way too many people. <laughs> Gideon's like, what? what? Are you kidding me? We need more. God's like, you need 300 of the not-so-sharp ones. And then like wins. My favorite is in, and there's a ton of these, but in Joshua, this is hysterical. So Joshua, obviously, if you go through the 40 years in the wilderness, Joshua is this young man. One day Moses goes out to the tent of meeting. Joshua goes with him. And then it says when, when, when Moses left, Joshua stayed. He lit, Joshua literally moved in with God. Hung out, played Xbox. I mean, like roomies, like lived there. He, Joshua and Caleb were the only, one who, only ones who came out of that generation. Just phenomenal man of God. He's the, he's the head of, I mean, he received the mantle, this passing uh, of Moses to him. He's the, he's the spiritual leader. He's the commander, the general of the army of God. He's just this incredible, testosterone just, you know, rolls off this guy. So he comes up to Jericho. They've had a couple battles, but really well. He's coming to scout out Jericho, and I think this is great. So he's walking up in verse 13, and he sees this individual standing in the middle of the road with a drawn sword. And Joshua, full of testosterone, he walks up and he says, are you for us or for our enemies? And this guy goes, neither. Because Joshua's like, no, no, we're the good guys. Probably heard about us. We're Israel, kind of a big deal. Uh, you know, coming in, this is our lamb, taking over the joint. And the guy says, neither but as commander of the Lord's army. Joshua's like, no, 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 I'm the commander. But what Joshua failed to remember is that there was the army of Israel with its commander, and then there was the army of Israel with its commander. And the army of Israel with its commander meets the army of Israel with its commander. In fact, listen to what this guy says. He called, I mean, Joshua completely humbles himself. And then he says, just a couple verses down in verse 2 of the next chapter, verse 2, he says, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. So he comes to Joshua. Joshua's gearing up for a fight, right? And the commander of the Lord's army goes, Yeah, we already went in, took care of it, it's one. In fact, don't say anything, just walk in, kind of walk around the city, things are going to fall apart, you're going to go in and receive it. Because the battle was won here. We do it on time. There's no clock. 
And you always say, preach as long as you want, but you don't mean it. Ah! <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be gentle. Oh, 11.46. Sorry, the worship was long. That was a joke. For your note, you can go study the notes when you get home. In Daniel chapter 10, Daniel is visited by Gabriel, who is talking about fighting the Persian army. Spirit, yeah, the Persian spiritual forces. And then after them, the Greek, like, God is miles down the road from you. All right, five quick verses. Ephesians chapter 1. That was the introduction. Are you ready? No, this goes really quickly. Five, here's what, here's what I want you to realize. And this is what we're going to go through this week. I want you to know who you are. It'll change the way that you pray. It makes me sick to my stomach when I hear people pray. And it's, I don't know the other countries, but the United States of America. I travel a lot around the country. I just see the church in a very wide, broad spectrum, you know? And it's not that I know more than you, it's just that I, I know more than you. Because I'm all over the country, and it's, it's bizarre how people pray. They pray these little wimpy, like, victim prayers. Like they're just, oh, oh God, protect me and help me. Do, do, you know, do you even know who you are? Honestly, when, as a Christian, when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. Biblically, Romans chapter 5, 6, and 7. When God looks at you, he sees Jesus. When Satan looks at you, he sees Jesus. It's remarkable in James chapter 4, when James says, resist the devil. Do you know what the, resist, the word resist means? You can study it yourself. The word resist is a compound Greek word. It literally means to receive identity. To resist, or, or, or excuse me, submit yourself then to God, resist the devil. The word submit means to receive your identity. When I submit myself to God, I literally say, I believe what you say about me. And when you believe what, when you believe how he sees you, and that's how I really am. When you resist the devil, the word resist is a fighting term. Stand against, it's mentioned five times in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. It's an aggressive term against the enemy. When you know who you are and the enemy comes after you, you turn and say, he flees. The word flee is used throughout the New Testament. means to escape with your life. The enemy is scared to death that you will walk in who you're called to be. I'm telling you, it's absolutely true. You have nothing to fear. And if you see yourself the way God has created you to see yourself, let me give you one more quick one. Paul expounds in chapters 5 and 6 of Romans. Do you know what it means to be justified? It means to stand before God like you've never sinned. Ever. Your past has been wiped away. Sea of forgetfulness. When you stand before God, it's like you in Christ, because of what he did on the cross was so remarkable, so thorough, that's like you've never sinned. When the enemy, that's true, right? Someone like, okay, he's an authority. Okay, I, I, I back him. Okay, so when you stand before God, it's like you've never sinned. You know how the enemy's going to come to you and he's going to remind you of your past. That's how he attacks you. Did you know that when he reminds you of your past, he's operating illegally against you? Because when he, you know, Jesus has your past. So when the enemy comes to me and reminds me of my past, I'm like, Jesus has it. In fact, Satan not only has access, does not have access to your past, you don't have access to your past. That belongs to Jesus. So you are absolutely new. Five times. Here's, we already looked at number five, or number, number five, so there's only four. Ephesians chapter one, verse three. We're going to go through this one tonight in particular. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. God, this is beautiful. God has blessed you spiritually with every spiritual blessing the word every is the word pas it has two different meanings depending on the context it can be translated all or every 
most women in general, I think, but I'll use my wife, they use pos wonderfully. Uh, all and every. My wife will come into my daughter's room. This is a never-ending battle, but she'll come into my daughter's room and it looks like a daughter's room. And she'll say, I want all this, all, I want all this cleaned up before dinner. And then she'll come back in 45 minutes. <laughs> and unlike your perfect children, not much has changed. So Corinda will employ a different, a different uh, adjective. She won't just say, I want all this cleaned up. She'll say, I want every, and she does, her countenance is impressive. I want every single thing in this room picked up. You're like, what's the difference between all and every? Well, it's still the all, but every is the emphasis of every, spac, every aspect of the all. I, check, I messed it up. I, do, I can do it better. Hold on. So all is all of it. Every is every single aspect of the all. You're not blessed with all the blessings. You're blessed with every single blessing God can possibly bless you with in the heavenly realms. You, ha you are not deficient. You are not deficient. He has given you everything to overcome. When he says, be holy as I am holy, he wasn't just like, yeah, they're not going to pull that off. He's giving you everything you need to be who you've been called to be. We're going to talk about that tonight. Then he comes down to the second one. See how quick these go? In verses 18 through 22, this is incredible. We'll go through this quick. Paul begins to pray for, the, for the, those in Ephesus. And get this, the problem like every other believer, even Ephesus struggled a little bit with this, we tend to want to see here and not see here. Well, my problem, if we would just change this. Well, no, the problem is this. And if you change this, this will change. Well, if they would just dress different, they got to see themselves different. Well, if they just don't use that language, they've got to see themselves different. The problem is here. I'm telling you, the problem's here. Listen to what Paul, this is how Paul talks. He says in verse 18, I'm almost done. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart, I met a doctor today in your church. He's like really intelligent. And we talked about this. The heart does not have eyeballs. Amen, brother? Don't ignore me. Amen. Yeah, the, eye, the heart does not have eyeballs, okay? Then why would he say, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be opened? He's talking about spiritual. I know you can see physically. I want you to see spiritually. Dude, listen to this. We have entered into a different season in our world. And I'm just going to correct it because I hear people all the time saying, well, no one knows about this. You're supposed to know the season in which you live. Jesus criticized the leaders of Israel and he criticized the people of Israel for not recognizing the season in which they lived. The three wise men did. There were all kinds of people who did. You and I are supposed to recognize and see spiritually the spiritual condition of our city and our country. Like you're supposed to. This is what Paul says. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. That you may know the hope to which he's called you. This glorious inheritance in the saints. And get this. His incomparably great power for us who believe. And then he describes the power. You're like, we have power? That power is like the working of his mighty strength when he exerted in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. In short, the same power that lives in Jesus the same power that resurrected him from the grave lives in your body. Third one, verse 2, chapter uh, 6. No, verse 6 of chapter 2. <laughs> I got to, got to flip them. And he says in verse 6, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. Above every principality and power, there is nothing that has authority over you. When the enemy comes and lies at you, he's a liar. You were a guardian chair. You were a butler and not that good. You got fired. I'm a, I'm a son of the most high. I'm not arrogant. I just know who I am. Listen, go home and in the morning, wake up and look in the mirror and go, you are awesome. 
I've been saying it. I know who I am. It's amazing. We, we, we did this with the teens yesterday. I listened to how people talk about themselves. Oh, I'm so stupid. No, you're not. Stop that. We speak about things, we speak over ourselves things that we're not. You need to come out of agreement with that. When you make a mistake, just say, oh, I'm incredible. That's beneath me. I'm the man. <laughs> just watch how everybody looks at you. It's awesome. Here's the last one. Here's number four, and then I'll let you go. And this is my favorite. Listen to this. Verse, verse 10 of chapter 3. Now focus with me. I've given you a lot, but absorb this last one. He's got this long, uh, really quickly. So for three chapters, God has been describing who you are, which is the greatest of his creation. You are, you are literally sons and daughters of the Most High God. He's taken his DNA and put it in your body. Three chapters. The enemy does not have that. He is not on your level. He was a ministering spirit sent to serve. You are royalty, spiritually. Shake your head, say amen. Just I agree with that. In chapter 10, you say, what was the purpose? Why? See, my question was, why didn't God just come into the garden and just smash the enemy? We could all go back in the pool. I mean, it would have been awesome. We could just went right on. Why didn't God do that? Verse 10, God's intent was that now, through the church, this manifold wisdom of God. What's the manifold wisdom of God? All that he's revealing about who his sons and daughters are supposed to be. This manifold wisdom of God, it should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. That's a lot, but put that together. God, his whole, his whole deal in sending Jesus was to reveal to the rulers and authorities of the heavenly realms, you're not in charge anymore. And he reveals that through us. You are a walking statement to the enemy. You can't have my kids. You can't have my home. You can't have my neighborhood. You can't have my town. You can't even have Starbucks. Or Dunkin' Donuts. You can't have my neighborhood. Why? I know who I am. And we were created to rule and reign here in Christ. And you were not. What would happen if you prayed like that and you actually believed, believed, believed who you are? So that was long. I promised to be, I'll be a really good steward with your time this week. But I want you to come this week. And there's no ulterior motive on that. Not like I get extra money per person, right? So I do, I want you to come this week and I just, let's, let's look together. I've been telling the teens, just let's look together about who you are in Christ. I'm telling you, it's astounding. You were created to overcome. So I, I want you to come this week. We're going to look tonight in Ephesians chapter 1, verses, uh, verse uh, 3. Just one verse. And we're just going to just walk through. I think there's things that go on in your life. Habitual activities. You realize... No one ever quits sinning. You have to be delivered from sin. You have to be saved from sin. If you could quit sinning, you don't need Jesus. You don't have to come anymore. You can just go golfing. You have to be saved from sin. He has to save you. And I know people who come to church week after week after week, they pray in their seat, I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to look at that again. I'm never going to say that again. Yes, you are. <laughs> yes, you are. Because that's who you are. You continue to do that because that's what you like. That's what confession is. I confess. I like this. Repentance is I don't want to like this. Well, how in the world am I going to stop doing something that I like? He's going to change you from the inside. And I'm telling you in the name of Jesus, you can be a different person. And it's all about who you are. We're going to have so much fun. So, can I close this in prayer or do you have anything else? Are we good? Who's not coming? They're all, they're all coming. Yeah. 
No, 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 honestly. Um, we're going to have a great time. We're going to get in the Word. I'm going to be responsible with your time. Are we going to have nursery available or anything like that for parents so they can vote? Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. So we'll work on that kind of stuff. But uh, whatever it takes to get you here and, and uh, so we can plug in and, and help you, we want to do that. Good enough? Father, we love you this morning. We thank you for the truth of your Word. And it just does. It just reveals. It just reveals who we are. It is the absolute, oh, this is so huge. It is the final authority. It is the final authority over my life. The scripture is the guaranteed word of God of who I am. And so, Father, we're going to proclaim that this week. And it's more than just mental assent or mental agreement or, you know, hey, I'm going to do it this time. Father, we're going to come into agreement with your word and your Holy Spirit is going to stamp that on our heart and change us. There's going to be a working of your power and authority and who you are in us that we can walk out of here and be different. I'm talking from Peter to, or from Simon to Peter, from Saul to Paul, different. It's what we want. And so we're just going to rejoice and have a great time. It's going to be a wonderful week. In your name we pray. And everybody said, amen. All right, see you tonight.